Three, two, one. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Only the Penitent Shall Pass podcast. We hope everyone who's listening to this during the Christmas season is having a blessed holiday. Today's episode is part four and the conclusion of our Advent series as we look at the events and historical narrative leading up to the birth of the Messiah. Today's episode will conclude as we look at Luke's gospel as the angels come and announce the newborn king's birth to the shepherds in the field. And now, let's delve into the discussion. Merry Christmas, Master John. Merry Christmas. We are... I'm glad it's finally here. It is. We are on part four of our Nativity series, recording for the week of leading up to Christmas, I should say, Advent. And we've covered Matthew. We've covered the first part of the gospel story in Luke. And now we come to, we're going, as we said last time, we're going backwards. And we're now looking at the shepherds we're looking at the birth of christ in in luke so first off what stands out to you in our discussion so far this week i was thinking more last night we started off we did a whole episode on the genealogies which is always very overlooked and now we get to the gospel of luke and luke he was a sort of historian the, the early tradition is that he went to the Holy Land and he basically interviewed people. He did the work of a historian and he wanted to give us all the details he could. And so if you look at the, think, take that fact about Luke and then look at the genealogy and we realize how much a, a part of history this story is. It's just as historical as anything else. And I think that was the original theme for our little series here is we wanted to ask the question well did christmas really happen right not you know did santa claus really bring people gifts but christmas right which is christ's mass so and we we could take these two accounts together and sort of look and say these are secondhand accounts of the story people who knew those that witness these things happen, right? These are reliable witnesses to the fact. And that's something we should all keep in mind as Christians, that this is an ongoing story and this is the beginning of it right here. And it happened on a particular, at a particular time on a particular day. And I guess those are just some of my, some of my thoughts thinking back over what has been said. So, we're looking at Luke chapter two. Uh, anyone who's been to a Christmas Eve mass has heard most likely these words read in verse one. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, that's where he was living, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. And he went with his, with his wife Mary, his espoused wife being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be, the baby should be delivered. And she brought forth, she brought forth, excuse me, her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid them, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So the first thing we, we, we really got to mention here is Caesar Augustus was a real Caesar. We read of the annals of Caesar Augustus, both in the Bible and outside of the Bible. The Romans record that he existed. He was a real Caesar over Rome. The point number two is that censuses did occur in ancient history all the time. And the way they would tax the people is they would have all the people go back to the town they were born so they could count. They could get a good count and then determine what the taxes for the people in the regions would be. Now, it's fascinating that Joseph, the, the earthly father of Jesus, was originally from Bethlehem. What, why is that fascinating? Because 800 years prior, in the 8th century, 800 years prior, the prophet Micah, predicts, prophesies that in Micah, in Micah uh, 5 verse 2 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I think we've already talked about this, but the Bible really does predict the future. It happens a lot and not in the sort of tricky fashion that it gives so many predictions that obviously some of them has to come true. It gives very particular predictions. Like everybody at this time knew that the Messiah was going to come from the house of David. And he did come from the house of David. They knew where he was going to be born and that's where he was born. Right. And so here you have this guy, Luke, who was a convert. He was a Greek physician, a doctor, who converted to the Christian religion. And later on, he goes in back, he goes back to the Holy land to check all this out. And it must've panned out. I mean, if he got there and started talking to people and they were telling him a bunch of nonsense, well, we probably wouldn't have the gospel of Luke. Would we? Like Not his, at all. His, his witness is very reliable. And so, I mean, this is supposed to, Obviously, those, this isn't the reason for our faith, but we should feel very confident in our faith when we hear stuff like that. And, and not that we make our decisions and determination based on secularists, but even among the secular secularists, there's no debate that the book of Micah was written in the 8th century. If you read Micah, um, A, it was preserved, we know, through the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was definitely written many years before the birth of Christ. And, and we know that Micah was a contemporary of Amos, people like Amos and Hosea and Isaiah. And it's just amazing 
the prophecies that were made by Isaiah and Micah and others seven and eight hundred years before Jesus was born that that were fulfilled uh, that that's what gives so much credence to these stories it's they're not just myths in the sense that they're they became half truths no these are full truths these are real history like you're saying oh absolutely and even if you look at this line there's so much you can unpack right so here's this is the famous like you pointed out proclamation right caesar augustus that all the world should be taxed right or should be enrolled in a census would be a different translation well who is caesar augustus he was really the first true roman emperor you know his predecessor julius caesar was never officially the emperor right so caesar augustus isn't just an emperor he's the emperor he they called him what they called him the defined son of God and so on. And that was written on all the coins. So, you know, earlier, later on in the story, there's going to be a coin and Jesus is going to say, whose inscription is that? Right. And, you know, at the time it's Tiberius Caesar. And it says, well, you know, give to God what's God's and give to Caesar what's Caesar. The coin usually said son of God. Right. So that's who these emperors thought they were. So now we have this sort of juxtaposition. Right here. And you see how, I guess one way you could put it, literary God's providences, that we can see these grand themes right in the text. And if we step back and look at the breadth and depth of history, not just as a series of unrelated events, but as God's providence, we could say, oh, wow, this is incredible. So here you have the true king of king, lords of lord of lords, who's so humble that he's under you know, the direction of this guy who who thinks he's the son of God, but actually isn't the son of God. And over the course of the next 300 years, you're going to see Christ and his church um, struggle with the Roman Empire and ultimately be victorious. The whole empire will become Christian. The, they, the Caesars will adopt Christianity as the official religion. So there's just, there's so much that even just in one little phrase like that, you know, they they went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. And why is this important? Because Caesar Augustus thinks he's God. Jesus is God incarnate. And yeah, it's just, it's incredible. So we also see this theme throughout scripture, but especially here in in the nativity story, that God uses bad things to his ends. To his, so in his sovereign will, things that he has pronounced as evil, God uses for his good. We know in the Old Testament that God looks down on censuses. They're evil. God even tells the people not to do censuses. To, a census is can only be used for evil. And yet, in this context, God uses this evil thing, the performing of a census, to bring about making sure that the Messiah isn't born in Nazareth, but is born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really awesome point. 
and we've and we've talked about this before that people often complain and one of the reasons they find it hard to believe is that there's so much evil in the world but most people only see the evil they don't see the good that god's constantly making of that evil and and we're the ones causing the evil right not rather than god so like likewise it was 60 years prior that Pompey conquered Jerusalem for the Romans. And while the Israelites sinned against God at various times in their history, and they too performed uh, census counts, which was wrong, it, it appears that God used Pompey's conquering Jerusalem to set up pushing Joseph out of Nazareth momentarily so that night, that holy night, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Well, Jerusalem's the city of David, I apologize. But Bethlehem holds a holy place because David, too, is from there. Um, and so it just, it, it's just these, these sequence of events. The fall of Jerusalem by the hand of Pompey, Caesar Augustus ordering a census. It's kind of wild when you think about how awesome that time period was. So much was going on. A star in the heaven. Rome conquers Jerusalem. A census. There's all this tribulation. The, the Jews have just lost the Holy Land. Now, 60 years later, they're being moved from city to city. And, they've, they've, and, and, and all the inns, the rooms are all booked. I mean, it's just like a lot of, a lot of uh, commotion is going on. And, and, you, and it's easy to forget how much commotion was occurring yet in the midst of that this amazing thing was happening and it seems as though in the midst of chaos is when god announces his presence even stronger sort of like 2020 in the midst of chaos god in his sovereignty we can see him more clearer than ever just like that star that the that the wise men saw yeah absolutely what what does it say uh went out a decree that all the world should be taxed this is happening everywhere in in the world right i mean what is mostly the world right so the the entire all the lands that surround the mediterranean and and onward from you know from egypt to england if you can imagine such a vast territory Stuff like this is happening, and we humans we think we can, we can do, we can do what we shouldn't do, which is oh we can we can make everything chaotic, we can destroy like Caesar Augustus is doing, and then we can take that and we can make order. Well, we're going to come up with this vast system of law and taxation, and that's going to bring order to the chaos that we created, and. I think God's showing us an alternative way, which is like, no humans, you're actually making everything worse. What you need is for God to come in your midst and you need to turn to him and ask him to say, Hey, can you make things better? And he will by teaching us a new way to live. And that, you know, the teaching us the way of faith, right. You know, and having truly good principles. And then from there, maybe you could even, make truly good laws and you know a better society which is it seems like what everyone wants 
But without that foundation stone, which is Christ, well, you're basically, you're just going to get different forms of Caesar Augustus. And it's not good, right? It does not make people happy. <laughs> it, it, it was also necessary for Rome to, to have conquered Jerusalem prior to the Messiah coming. And that fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah that the Messiah would be a servant of rulers. So, so it wasn't Jews who were controlling the promised land at the time of the Messiah's birth, but it was the Romans. And Isaiah saw that, or, or God gave Isaiah that vision to prophesy uh, that these, this was another necessity in pre- preparing for the advent of the Messiah. Matthew Henry writes, the circumstances of Jesus's birth, which were very mean and under all possible marks of contempt. He was indeed a firstborn son, but it was a poor honor to be the firstborn of such a poor woman as Mary. She had no inheritance to which he might be entitled as a firstborn. So, so he comes into the world to a poor woman and he comes into the world to a poor man because if Joseph had any money, it's doubtful that they would have been in the stable, right? He probably could have paid someone off to get a proper place for his wife to give birth. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, so we, we see that, that the Messiah comes in humility to, to fulfill more Old Testament prophecies. And before we get to the shepherds, which that's really what I wanted to focus this podcast on, I want to read one more word uh, from Matthew Henry. So, so Jesus is born. Joseph and Mary are there, surrounded most likely by animals in the stable. Some, I know some theologians believe it was most likely a cave. It wasn't necessarily the little wooden crash that people set out on their mantles. Um, and Matthew Henry writes, uh, and then Jesus is put into a manger or a, a feeding trough for, for, the, for the cattle. Matthew Henry writes, the word which we render swaddling clothes, some derive from that Greek word that signifies to rend or tear, and thence infer that he was so far from having a good suit of child bed linen that his very swaddles were ragged and torn. The Jews couldn't have conceived this, John. The Jews thought the Messiah was going to come with a sword. He'd be probably born to the the wealthiest and most pronounced family in Judea or Israel. Instead, the Messiah comes at the absolute bottom of society. Yeah, and it it really makes sense. I think a lot of people have a hard time with this even today, but it it really makes sense because you think... Well, what are the things that separate us from God? Well, it's our pride, it's our wealth, our arrogance. Um, we want we want to take the things that are earthly and world. You know, maybe a better word is worldly, and make these the greatest things. And as long as we're doing that, we're we're building this un- unbridgeable gulf between us and God. But then you, you think about the Messiah whose, whose sole goal here is to reunite us to God. 
he makes it so no, there's no way you can, you can put those things between you and God if you look to Christ, who's who's in these rags in a stable, right? All those things should sort of fade away, and you're just like contemplating the Christ child in the manger and saying, "Oh, that is God." Like this is this is what God thinks of all our worldly desires and delights. He doesn't think they're much of anything because he himself is glory and greatness and power and honor. And so in order to reunite us to him, he loved us so much that he says, okay, I'll step out of my heavenly temple and I'll come here. And then the humans that accept me, they can truly understand what, what it's all about. And then finally, after at the end of all things, then we're going to see him in that light that the Jews originally imagined. He's going to come in glory and from heaven and he's going to make all things right. And he's going to reign in a temple and he's going to fight with the sword in his mouth and do all these things that, that, you know, the average person would imagine the king of the world doing right. Now we come to verse eight, Luke chapter two. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. And we know what happens. The shepherds must have been amazed at this sight. We, we see that, G, that, that the Holy Spirit chose a poor Jewish girl, Mary probably 13, 14, 15 years old, just a young girl from a very mean circumstances, you know, not from a wealthy family. And who does God then send the angels to go and, and announce the, the celebratory statement that the Messiah is born? Literally the people who are looked down on <laughs> by society, by the, by high culture, the shepherds, they were considered, the runts of society. They were dirty. They were smelly. They were not wealthy. It was literally considered one of the lowest level positions of society, John. And those are the people that the angels come to. And those are the people that go to that cave or that little stable and see the Messiah right where the angels yeah. said he would be. Right. And this, and I think this is what Luke is trying to get at in the whole, this whole opening here. Because he has Mary, um, you know, in Mary's song, her joyful song, her canticle, uh, we call it generally known as the Magnificat. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent away empty. He hath hope in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. So that's what's going on. Like, so you have these shepherds that 
are of this low degree and they're just sort of hanging they're just sort of out in the fields working they're just living their lives and what does the angel say peace goodwill towards men and so this is why christ comes just goodwill towards all men christ is for all people in all places at all times and again, all these other things that we think matter, whether it's wealth or having a successful career, and these things all fade to the background. They become secondary because the ultimate thing is here, right? This is Jesus when he's a man. He'll go to he'll go to his disciples and he'll just say, "Hey, you, follow me," and they'll follow him, right? They'll stop everything they're doing. They'll leave everything they have and they'll just follow him. Well, yes, because this is very God. If if you to claim anything else that this isn't God, it just makes the story kind of crazy. But no, most people don't read this and think it's crazy. They even most atheists they've said, "Well, it's a very beautiful story," but you know, and it's like, "Well, no, that's not enough for it to be a beautiful story or a nice teaching." This is the ultimate event. So John Calvin makes the point uh, regarding the shepherds. He, he writes, it would have been no purpose. It would have been to no purpose that Christ was born in Bethlehem. If it had not been made known to the world. Right. I mean, yeah. obviously if, if no one knows Christ is born, what's the point to any of it? So, yeah. so, th- so th- it was absolutely essential that God send angels to announce the birth of the Messiah. Yeah, and this is what, you know, and there's a lot of, I mean, Jesus, he's born a king. And so we already talked about the Magi coming to worship this king. And now we have this sort of royal proclamation. right? Um, And so that's sort of all these traditions that we have about royalty and exalting that royalty and so on. They're being applied to this young babe that's again born in a major, swaddled in rags, surrounded by animals and all that entails. And yeah, it, like Calvin, like that's a really, it's you know that's really good. Like he has to. There's just something about the event; it has to be announced, and who better to announce it to than just these uh, people that happen to be standing about in a field nearby. So in in our previous episodes on the on the advent we talked about how God speaks to people in a language they can understand and John Calvin picks up on this also and he he says that when the angels say to the shepherds this day is born to you a savior who is Christ the Lord uh Calvin writes the angel adapted his discourse to hearers who were not altogether unacquainted with the promised redemption. In other words, the shepherds knew the law, right? Though they were lowly, though they were poor class, they went to the tabernacle, they went to the synagogue on the weekends, and they heard the law taught, and they were well acquainted with the prophecies that a day was coming when a Messiah would be born. And, and their faith, they were, they were looking forward to it. They, with with anticipation, just as like I right now, I'm looking forward to, with anticipation, to Christmas Eve Mass, right? To worship, to, to, um, to, 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 to reach the epoch of the Mass. Christmas Eve is special in, um, I don't know if they do this around the world, uh, but in American tradition, 
the sort of the climax of the mass is you've you've had the Eucharist, you've you've sung the songs, you've prayed the prayers of repentance, you've prayed the prayers of thanksgiving, and then the lights are all turned off and and the climax is we you light everyone holds a candle and remembers that night with in silence, singing singing silent night, but in a very, very reverent tone, we remember that moment. And so so the same anticipation I have towards Christmas Eve Mass, multiply that times a thousandfold the anticipation that the shepherds had in waiting for the Messiah to come. And and so when the angels speak, the angels know the language of the shepherds. And had the angels spoken to agnostics or atheists or apists, they wouldn't have understood what was going on, right? I mean, they, they would have just heard confusion. God comes to those who, who hear. And that and the shepherds were ready and waiting. Yeah. No, absolutely. And they and they went right away. That's right. They, 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 they immediately left. They immediately left their, their flocks and they ran to go and greet the Messiah. <laughs> and, and when they had seen it, they made known abroad that saying which was told them concerning the child. So yeah. they go and they see and they see the child. And, and you're right. So they see the child and what they see is a baby. But with the eyes of faith, they say, oh, wow, this is the Messiah. And they go and they tell everybody. And you must imagine what sort of stir that made in the in the in greater well, Bethlehem. And and, and well and, and, and even that's right, and even more so in the little the little stable where Joseph and Mary are. I mean, imagine you're Joseph and Mary, she just goes through labor, the exhaustion of giving birth to a child. And she doesn't have her family nearby, right? Her family are back probably in Nazareth, I assume. And suddenly the shepherds show up and they, they tell Mary and Joseph with, I, I mean, they must've just been talking so fast. Joseph might've had to say, slow down, slow down. Like what, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> and, and they say, they said, Hey, we, we were told by these angels and they started singing glory to God. This, it was the, it's, the, it's, it's the greatest moment of our lives. Nothing like this has ever happened to us. And they, and they go straight to where the angel tells them to go. And sure enough, inside a stable surrounded by animals, there's a baby wrapped in torn up rags to a poor little 13, 14, 15 year old woman, her betrothed husband. They're just sitting there. Right where the angels told them, and Mary and, and Luke records what Mary Mary did. It's he he writes. Now Mary kept all these things. In other words, all of this happened, and Mary's response was to just hold it close to her heart, and just meditate on the wonder of everything that was happening. She didn't. She didn't toss it under the bus. One of the things you and I have talked about this year is how easily people forget things, right? People can barely remember what, what happened at the beginning of this year. Solomon says, this is a curse upon humanity, that people have no remembrance of yesterday. Mary did the opposite of what so many people did to do is she remembered. She held all of this stuff close to her heart and she remembered. And most likely 
some of the narrative that Luke writes comes from his inter- interview with Mary when she was older. Yeah. Oh, most certainly. Most certainly. That brings us to the end of the episode. John, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure doing this week. Uh, we'll pick up next week. We'll move on uh, with new podcasts. We hope everyone has a very blessed Christmas. We hope that you find a church to celebrate Christmas Eve uh, mass or worship or what, whatever term you use, but don't stay home. Go join the body of Christ physically. Forsake not the assembling of the saints this Christmas Eve and worship God in one spirit and in one accord. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you.